0: Welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. Because that's actually one of the things that we want to mark us as a community is this sort of wide, expansive, generous space where we offer to each other at the beginning or the end of the week, whichever you live in. So I thank you for doing that with us, participating together. It's so good to be together. And as we move forward, just a quick re- or a reminder, many of you know that last week we had Bobby with us here to teach last week, and I'm going to talk more about that in a second. But one of the things that happens when somebody else on our teaching team comes and helps out here in Inglewood is that I actually have a chance to be out there helping out with some of our other volunteer teams through the weekend. And often I get to hang out with some of our children. Many of us have children in the room and I get to teach some of them sometimes. I get to laugh with many of them. It's great. But ultimately I get to watch and observe and participate in community with a different lens on Sundays like that. And every time I do that, I end up at the end of the day and I have this new sense of gratitude for the ways that so many of you serve in our community. The ways that you give time and energy to commons to help it become what it is. And I mean, there is a reason that we use organic metaphors to talk about communities. The ideas of planting and growing and flourishing. And we also talk about this word work because there's no way around it starting things and supporting things as they grow and investing in things as they mature, things like parishes even, this costs many of us, it costs us something. Whether we're talking relationships or in career, other parts of our lives, our creative impulses even, our fitness routines, even when it comes time for church, which is why I don't ever wanna lose sight of the ways that so many of you pick up what Commons is hoping to become in this city. You help it move forward and you do this with your volunteering, yes, of course, but you also do it in the time that you make for each other. Many of you are hospitable, you're hanging out during the week and that's awesome, but then above and beyond that, many of you engage your neighbors and your friends, your colleagues, fellow Calgarians, the ways that you take time to grow and stretch in your own personal journey. And guess what, all of these things make us better and make us a brighter space in our city, make us a brighter place in the neighborhoods that we live in day in and day out. And that organic, sometimes painstaking process that we're in all the time is an oh so real transformation. And it's one of my favorite things about doing community together. So thank you for the ways that you participate in that. Now, as I mentioned a second ago, last week we spent a little bit more time in Rome. And we're looking at this extensive letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to his friends in the first century, and if you missed out, you really do need to go and check out Bobby's sermon, because as she always does, Bobby skillfully and artfully invited us to think about ancient things right next to our everyday things, taking us back into the heart of this argument that Paul is making in Romans chapters nine to 11. And that's an argument that we're actually gonna wrap up today before we lean towards the end of the letter as we wrap up the series next week. See, this year, we're looking at how Paul, who's been talking to this ancient community of mixed-up Jews and Gentiles, how he pauses in these chapters we're looking at this year to speak to his Jewish siblings specifically. Because, see, the earliest followers of Jesus had a problem. And what was that? Well, their stories about God. Think deserts and gardens and cities and battles and think characters like Abraham and Esther and David and Moses and Ruth. All of these stories pointed God's people toward this idea of a Messiah, about someone who would come and make the world the way that God wanted it to be, which Jesus' friends and disciples contended was a divine promise that had been fulfilled in Jesus Jesus was this long-awaited person, and the problem is that many, if not most, of the Jews didn't see it this way. And now, Gentiles, these people who are not in God's story up to this point, they are starting to believe. They're starting to catch on. And Paul and his apostle friends, they had to try and reconcile this. And their writings and their musings come to us in these texts, but I don't know about you, but I think we have a tendency to hear them as being really heavy-handed. And they seem really super angsty most of the time, where most, if not all of us, have a tendency to hear Paul talking at us, where much of this letter can feel like a theological tongue lashing. You know what? It feels like he's saying, you guys aren't doing it right. And you're going to mess it all up, it sounds like sometimes. And it's not to say that Paul doesn't sound like that at times. The point is that we don't tend to read Romans or hear it as though Paul is pleading. Like one good friend to another. And like a hopeful ally really trying to get his friends to see that in Jesus, God has totally changed the landscape. And it's not just the religious game that's changed. All of creation has shifted in Paul's mind. And how is this? Well, this is some of what Bobby was inviting us to think about when she talked about how Paul was asking his Jewish friends to move from hollow religious performance and guilt-motivated action to wholehearted affirmation of Jesus how trusting in God could be about more than following rules and about living this confession that God is good, maybe even better than we could ever imagine. Look at Jesus is what Paul is saying all the time in Romans. And for Paul, this meant that he was building from his Jewishness to lean into his faith in Jesus, using multiple traditions, multiple parts of his life to make a way in the world. And this is something that Bobby talked about that we can all do together. Where we pull the different strands of our story together, we pull our religious memories and our practices, our old and our new ways of reading the Bible, and, oh yes, our fitful attempts to be moral and kind. And some of us just want to be level-headed. Using all of these things to build a faith that's based on God's expansive goodness. Learning to trust that, as Paul quotes at the end of chapter 10, God will still meet us. Regardless of our background, regardless of our pedigree, and thankfully, in spite of our constant failure to do everything right. Which, if you stop to think about it, many of us, this might be a different way and different message than some of us have ever heard from Romans before. And that's why we're gonna keep pressing on a little bit further today, but before we do that, let's pray together. God, you are present to us now in ancient text and in all of the places that we live and all the ways that we've already named in our prayers for community today. And as we sit in this space, we have so much need. We have need for clarity and for peace for healing, for light. And there is so much that we bring with us too. We bring our pain and our lament, our sorrow. but We also bring our hope and our worship. And we ask that you would hold all of these things where we need rest. Would you give us courage to let you near. Even in these moments, in simple ways, learning that your way, this way that Paul talks about, it's never exacting and harsh, and that we can trust you. Oh, Christ, we pray our hope center us now. Amen. All right. As I said, we're going to be working through Romans chapter 11 today, which is going to bring us to the end of this argument that Paul's been pulling together. And to do that, we need to talk about missing God, danger and grace, this French word, culture" and rhetorical questions. And I'm only going to say that French word once, I think, because I, that was a bit rough. Anyways, as we jump in today, we need to look back at the end of Romans 10 for a second, where we noted in the last couple of weeks, Paul has this habit of pulling pieces from the Hebrew Bible to illustrate his point. He just quotes his sources. And Bobby showed us one of these sections as she finished up last week, where Paul has been trying to describe how so many of his Jewish family were not accepting the story of Jesus. And this section points to how God's people regularly seem to have missed the memo. And Paul pulls this piece from Isaiah where God's posture to the Hebrew people is described this way. God says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Which is just Paul's way of saying, See, Jewish family, we have blown it before. Look what God said about us way back then. And maybe that's what's happening again here in the time of Jesus. And then in Romans 11, he starts this way. He says, I ask then, Did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself. I'm a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. And God didn't reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says? And what Paul's trying to do here is resolve this question of why so many Jews weren't paying attention. And why the Gentiles were starting to flock to the story of Jesus. And he's realized that in citing these verses from the Hebrew Bible where God's pictured as having to be patient, that someone in his audience might be thinking, you know what? I think God has had enough finally. Maybe God's moved on. And Paul is like, no. How could God have ditched the Jews? I am a Jew. 100% Jew. Professional Jew. Certified Jew. And in effect, he's saying, some Jews get it. Look at me. God hasn't tossed all of us yet. And to support this idea, he points back at Hebrew history, showing that there have been times when things looked bad before, and when God appeared to be aimless, and where the leaders abandoned the law, and how there always seemed to be a few, a handful of people who stayed true. And Paul saw this pattern playing out in his day, where Jesus' first Jewish friends appear to be this few. He calls them a remnant. Now, that leaves him still with this challenge to account for why so many, so many, the majority of God's people, those chosen by God in the past, why they couldn't recognize Jesus. And to explain this again, he pulls from a couple of ancient passages, and he says, look, look, The Jewish people were looking for redemption, but they couldn't find it. Actually, those who looked at Jesus and saw it there, they found it, but others weren't able to. And then he explains that God gave those who couldn't see a spirit of stupor, eyes that couldn't see and ears that couldn't hear to this very day. And that seems a little bit cryptic. And for the record, Paul is using the language that he has that's available to him to describe what's going on. And in fact, that's what we all do when we build theology. And in pulling from the text of the ancient period, he borrows this idea that in times past, people's ability to see God's work and follow God's way, it had been obscured for them. And with this language, Paul appears to be holding God responsible for people's inability to see. But if we look closer, at what's happening here and the sources that Paul's pulling from, it's really more of a description of how human beings resist God's best. And some commentators contend that Paul here, he's meaning to say that God lets people choose blindness because in the vocabulary that he uses here, Paul infers that we choose harmful ways and trajectories and this leads to a kind of insensitivity in our hearts, which I don't know about you, but that kind of rings true for me When you think about the ways that we mistreat each other in our species, and the way that we seek our desires over others' needs, and the ways that poor choices and bad habits make us numb and blind to the people around us. And all Paul's doing here is saying, see, God's people have missed God in the past. So this is not a new thing. And this might not be hard for us to imagine. I mean, maybe you're like me and you feel like at best, you're a novice at this whole spirituality thing. And maybe you're not as prone to read books by uh, medieval mystics in order to sort of deal with this anxiety like I do, but you probably feel it, right? And it pops up all the time. Maybe when you're listening to our teaching on Romans, for example, and it just doesn't seem to compute. And sometimes that's not on you. That's because of the content. Or maybe when you think about what it means to be disciplined or focused in your spiritual life, and it feels like a losing battle. And this goes for trying to be a good friend or a good partner or a good parent. Or maybe you're around people who are always talking about God, like God's doing stuff helping them get good parking spots, manufacturing the job they need, helping them control their sugar cravings. And maybe you live with this deep suspicion that this should be easier. Being a Christian should be more straightforward because other people seem to be figuring it out. And at least in part, this is because when these ideas come to us, it's because we have this view of spirituality where we think it's something we're supposed to master. And to some degree, we know that this is our view of spiritual life. If we find ourselves feeling like we miss God all the time. Either when we self-sabotage ourselves in a variety of ways. And I'm just thinking here about our regular old vices. The ways we waste time. The ways we feed our appetites. But then there's also the ways this feeling comes to us as we live. And so many of us are busy. Our work or our loved ones, or some distraction. These things consume our energy, and we don't connect in community the way we like, and we don't often find connection with those around us in everyday life. And over time, we start to tell ourselves that maybe we're just not cut out to be a spiritual person, and maybe we feel like we're missing something. Now, Paul's whole point centers on the fact that Jesus and God's work in Jesus should have been easy to see. And that so many in his Jewish family couldn't see the divine because, in Jesus because it was just there in a normal person, in a relatively normal life. Which is why I think it might be helpful for some of us to shift from thinking about spirituality as something we master to being something that we're awake for because if Paul was right that God in Christ is obvious, that all creation is now alive with the newness that Christ has brought, well then we should be able to see it if we're awake for it and we're awake to hear it, but in the normalcy. And there are so many ways that we can grow into the idea that we can't really master God, but then too we also need to grow in our capacity to see that we don't have to miss God either. You know, Frederick Buechner tells this story about how one Christmas, things weren't going the way he wanted them to. He was tired, the food hadn't been quite right, he had to do all this stuff for his kids to get them ready for Christmas morning and then he lies down in bed and he remembers laying there on Christmas Eve how he told his friend that he'd feed that guy sheep while he was away for the holidays and so he crawls out of bed and pulls himself down to his friend's barn. And in the light of a 40-watt bulb, he tears the bales apart and he calls the sheep in and they're sort of slow and stupid and he's getting impatient. And only then did he notice, he says, with the smell of hay and the dust in the cold winter air, the manger that he just filled on Christmas Eve. And he writes, it seems to me that the whole world is a manger. The whole bloody mess of it where God is being born again and again and again and again And you're so busy with this and that you don't see it You don't notice it Or then there's Marilyn McIntyre and she talks about learning to listen To hear through the noise to hear the music and I love that turn of phrase and to illustrate this, she talks about how, despite our wildlife populations being depleted as urbanization takes over, we still have not eliminated bird song from our urban landscapes. And she talks about the work of learning to hear those songs, how it takes time, how this artful listening requires that we need to stop when we heard a, hear a bird singing and listen to the whole song, she says. Or what about stopping and trying to spot this bird, maybe just above us on a power line, maybe hiding in a bush right outside our window, pressing in to hear the singing through the white noise of our neighborhood street. And McIntyre reflects on how this kind of attention is not unlike prayer, choosing to hear the good and the holy in and through all things. And both of these authors hint at how we can address what Paul calls eyes that can't see and ears that can't hear. And maybe that's a step that you can take in your spiritual journey. Maybe you can learn to see the divine in this snow-covered city we live in. Or maybe you can learn to see the divine in the hands of your infant or the hands of the person who serves you bread and wine. Or maybe in the discovery of an old journal or an old photo where you are present in that moment to how you are not the same person you used to be, thank God. Or maybe for you it's more about the hearing, catching the sound of the divine in a loved one's voice, or in the laughter that will erupt spontaneously between you and another person this week, in a long forgotten song on the radio that's gonna remind you that you're alive or maybe in the news or some message you get that you have been looking for and waiting for for a long time. In all of these things, we wake up to how missing God is not about failed opportunities, and it's not about believing the right things. It's about discovering that divine life is right here in front of us. No. Paul transitions from this point and where for the last couple of weeks we've observed him clearly talking to his Jewish family members, here he shifts and in verse 13 he actually says this. He says, I am talking to you Gentiles now. And he goes on to make this point. He says, listen, the Jews may have missed God in the past but that made things good for everybody else. Them missing out allowed everybody else to benefit The grace of God. They're led into the divine story. And then Paul does this interesting thing. He starts building this analogy based on olive trees. Actually, the growing and the flourishing of olive trees. And if you're wondering what biblical scholars do for a living, you should at least know that some of them spent their days researching ancient olive growing practices and and how Paul used this practice to make his point. I know it's stimulating, but we're going to talk about that in a second, because this analogy that Paul makes starts simple. Paul says this. He says, imagine an olive tree, not unlike these ones I've given you an image of. And he says, look, if the roots of a tree are good, so are the branches, which follows. But then he starts to say more, and it starts to take shape for us, this analogy he's making. He says, if some of the branches of the tree that that I've just gotten you to picture have been broken off, and here he's talking about the Jews who didn't believe in Jesus. And you, you Gentiles, though you're a wild olive shoot, you've been grafted in among the others and now you share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. Which, for those who don't know, this is what grafting looks like. You take shoots from one plant, and you join them to another plant, which is what the guy's doing there with that tape. So Paul's saying, Gentiles, you're like one of these shoots. You've been taped into the Hebrew story. But then he says to them, don't consider yourself superior to the other branches in this tree. If you do, consider this. You don't support the root. The root supports you. So here's what's tricky about this. And I know you didn't know we were gonna be talking about olives and now you're hungry, so stay with me. Because scholars have debated whether or not Paul actually knows what he's talking about here. Whether he's just making up this talk about olives, or if it's actually based on the practices that the audience would have been familiar with. And what's curious is that the best scholarship we have today on Paul indicates that he might have known a thing or two about olive trees, but that he's playing with the facts to make his point. See, olive trees aren't grown by taking wild olive branches and grafting them into cultivated trees, which is the picture that Paul paints for for us. And this is because wild olives aren't edible. So doing what Paul says isn't something that a farmer would ever do in real life. In truth, ancient and contemporary olive growers actually take cultivated shoots with edible fruit and they graft them into wild olive trees. And farmers do this because wild plants often have stronger root systems for survival and fruit bearing. So here's the image. You take good branches with good fruit and you plant them into a strong, hardy plant to make a solid product, which makes sense. Except that Paul, when Paul says that the wild Gentile branch has been grafted into the good olive root, he's actually contradicting this common technique. And this only matters, as interested as I'm sure you are, this only matters if we look at what Paul's saying to his Gentile friends. Because what Paul's doing is he's flipping the analogy. The audience thinks to themselves, wait, Paul, the way you just described it, that's not how you plant olives. Oh, wait a minute. Because Paul keeps going and he says, remember, the roots of this faith we share, stretching way back into the Jewish story, those support you, Gentiles. You are late to the game and you've been grafted in. Don't forget where the roots come from. And he encourages them to not get too high on themselves, to not look down on their Jewish neighbors who had no use for Jesus, and to not let grace make them arrogant. And maybe some Gentiles were taking the great openness of God they had found and using it to crowd others out, pushing Paul to use his vast knowledge of olives in this case. Because yes, Paul might have been correcting some ethnic tension in this community, convincing Jews to let Gentiles into grace and then reminding Gentiles that they owed the root system and the, light so- or the life source of that grace to the Jews. But the power of this olive analogy is how it spotlights the danger of grace. How our ways of faith and our beliefs and all the ways our culture and experience get wrapped up in those. How sometimes we adopt religious forms that speak about grace and then practice including some people and excluding others. And Paul's warning to his Gentile friends can come to us today because he has celebrated how they have been grafted into God's story. But then he goes on to argue that the Jews who have not believed the broken off branches of this tree, in other words, that God is able to graft them back into that this is how God meant to save Israel all along, going back to his promises to Abraham and going back to his faithful promises that all peoples would be saved, which is what Paul says in verse 32 here. Which means this, the power of olive trees and this analogy that Paul's making isn't about knowing who's been put in their place. And it's not really about knowing the ins and outs of olive trees. It's to catch a glimpse that whatever we've done and whoever we've become, we can always come back to God's goodness, where grace will bind us and graft us and reconnect us again to the source. And this is so important because like I said a second ago, religion and believing and trying to be better people, these things sometimes teach us to draw firm boundaries around ideas and people. Where we naturally disqualify those we love who believe certain things about the Bible. Or we disqualify friends who use Jesus in certain ways, or we disqualify that person who espouses political views as being Christian, and that makes us mad. And I get that. But maybe more importantly, we draw lines in our own lives. Maybe around a particular character flaw that we cannot seem to get past. Maybe a mistake we made where the consequences are still playing out for us painfully. Or maybe for some of us, it's just this nagging feeling we have that we won't ever quite be enough to be in or eligible or accepted. And whatever the case, if your idea of what faith is allows that you or anyone else could ever be too far gone, if it can't imagine that there's always a way back, there's always a way to be grafted back in, then it's probably time to let that faith go and hear Paul in new ways, speaking to us of grace that holds us even when we can't do right and we can't believe like we want to and even when it feels like we have not done enough. Which brings us to the end of this argument that Paul's been making. And here, after working through all these challenging questions and talking about olives and expounding on the surprising expansiveness of God's mercy, Paul literally breaks into song like a Disney film. And this is what he says. He says, Oh, the depth of the richness of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable God's judgments and God's paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord, he asks, and who has been God's counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from God and through God and for God are all things. To God be the glory forever. Amen. And it's almost as if Paul can't contain all the feels in this moment. And yes, in writing this song, he pulls more pieces of the ancient Hebrew Bible for us. And those are the quotes that you see on the screen. And in them, Paul asks these rhetorical questions, more or less pointing to how impossible it is to know and comprehend how good God is. This good grafting God he's talking about. And I love how Cynthia Kittridge writes about this. She says, look, Paul's asking the rhetorical who has known God's mind, who can search the paths of grace that God has traced when he has just finished trying to do just that. And he's just pulled analogies from his everyday olive experience to make sense of it and written verse after verse of cryptic text for us to describe it all which I hope you see, makes room for all of us. With Paul's doxology ringing in our ears to respond ever so courageously, who has searched for the way of the divine and who has known the mind of God? You have, and I have. When we dare to imagine that mercy is God's primary character, And when we lay down the work of boundary-making with our faith in exchange for the challenge of welcoming every person, our neighbors, our enemies, our own battered selves in some cases. And when we choose to look and listen for the holy tremor of God's enduring goodness, hidden in plain sight for all the world to find, And guess what? Do you think that you're a novice in this spiritual life today, friends? Because you're not. Just now you've seen and you've known the unsearchable riches of God wide enough and deep enough to carry you home. Let's pray. God, these old words come to us and we ask that they would come to us in new ways, that they would chart new pathways for our way of being in the world and where our imagination of what it means to be a spiritual person and devout person, where that needs to shift from this idea of mastery to one of being awake, we ask that you would gently nudge us for those moments where we feel like maybe we're missing you in the busyness of our life, and the commitments we have, and the relationships that occupy our time and attention. God, it's natural that we would feel sometimes like we're just adjacent to where you are. Thank you for Paul's reminder that missing you isn't about believing the right stuff. And it's not even about the opportunities that have passed us by. It's about being awake and looking to see and hear. And we ask that you would give us grace to do that in the days Ahead, Would you keep us from the habits of making grace and taking it and using it to draw lines and build walls? Maybe we do this with other people, but I'm sure we do it more even in our own lives, in our own hearts. We disqualify ourselves. Would you gently correct us today and teach us to trust that you are as faithful as Paul says, bringing everybody home grafting everybody back in. This is our hope, and we carry it carefully and tenderly today in the name of Christ. Amen.